This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. I'm Sarah Howe, and I'm very honoured to kick off proceedings tonight with a short reading, um, but I'm mainly here to gawp in awe at these two <laughs> fine creatures who are the, the great hope of uh, British poetry, in my view, uh, and Hong Kong poetry and all sorts of poetries. Um, I just love them to bits, and I'm so thrilled that Mary Jean's book is in the world today, and yay, and Will's will be next year. So, hooray for them! Um, I'm going to be comparing a conversation between the two of them later, so you'll hear much more from them um, in due course. I'm just going to read, I think, three poems, um, one from my book. Um, I thought I would read this poem because it's a mother poem and that's a sort of tribute to the amazing work that Mary Jean has done in writing about that relationship between um, a mother and a daughter. I'm, I, I'm just so... Uh, impressed endlessly by her poems and their immense subtlety and rigour and uh, emotional layering. Um, This is called Mother's Jewellery Box. The twin lids of the black lacquer box open away. A moonlit lake, ghostly lotus leaves unfurl in tears. Silver chains Careful O's and A's in copper plate. Twisted strings of flattened beads. Lupin seeds. Carnelians, their tarnished settings. Horseflies' eyes. Her amber ring. My fingers gauge its weight. Teaspoon of honey. Whiskey poured by morning light. And then I'll read a couple of brand new poems, so brand new that they might be slightly hapless still. Um, Apologies. Uh, They come out of a commission that I've been doing um, recently with a museum in Liverpool, the World Museum. I've been helping them to redesign their case of Chinese ceramic objects. Um, And so these poems are going to, in one way or another, be sort of displayed with the, the... the the objects in their newly redesigned gallery space. Um, This is a sort of corona of six intertwined poems. I'll just read two of them. Um, This first object intrigued me because it was sort of made twice, once in the East and once in the West. It was originally um, a cup for alcohol when it was made in China, about so big, a beautiful white, pristine, thin thing. Um, And then when it came to Europe sometime in the 17th century, um, the Europeans thought that this was such a precious thing, more precious than gold even at that time. Um, They decided to rim it 
in gilt silver and add a, a foot to it, um, and in the process sort of translated its material object into something they could understand. They, they made it a sugar bowl. Um, and I imagine that the sugar bowl probably, the, 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 the um, alcohol cup wasn't probably very happy about its new identity. Finely potted white glazed porcelain cup, de Huawei. The English will forget who invented tea. The way you might not guess at first, who made me or why. The riddle of my origins begins on a spinning wheel in Fujian and ends across two continents with a silversmith in Restoration, London. I was made in a kiln's stark flame, feeling the translucent grey glaze harden at my lip. Once cool, I was ready for the kiss of alcohol. On summer evenings between friends, I brimmed with rice wine, no less refined than my own pure moon. The white the Chinese call de hua, but you might know as Blanc de Chine. Some twists in my provenance are lost even to me. A Pope's embassy, the halls of Versailles, hands that held me up to the light in awe at my lustre, placed me in locked cabinets with seahorses, sextants, unicorns' tails. But somewhere along the way, that clod of a smith insisted on gilding the lily. I still remember the grip of those red-hot scallops clamped around my rim, the strange weight of this metal foot. Never again will I rise for a toast against the night's black cloth. Remade in your imagination, a sugar bowl. The brittle lumps would clink against my delicately tapering sides like coal into a pail. A creature of two worlds, but belonging to none. Tell me, is there a word for it in this new tongue? Um, and then this last poem is another kind of porcelain dish, um, which was named uh, Krakware by the Dutch um, after the after the, the, the ships. That, that would transport it um, from the Far East round um, India um, and the Indies uh, to Europe. Um, I probably don't need to say much more about that journey because it's in, written into the poem, but um, I imagine that this dish uh, suffered a sort of violent past and, and remaking, a bit like the World Museum in Liverpool, which was actually destroyed in the Blitz, um, and burned to the ground, so uh, just the facade of the old building survives. Thinly potted porcelain crack dish painted in underglaze blue. Is there a word for it in this new tongue? The class of ships the Portuguese named Caravella and the French Carac. Swift three or four masters, they were crack to the Dutch whose guttural pitch I first heard from the sailors who loaded us up in our straw-stuffed crates. Porcelain vessels of diverse sorts, the manifest called us, stowed by the hundreds of thousands. Wares named for those stately ocean-going craft, sailing homeward from the mythic east, freighted with silk and damask, 
barrels of oakum, quicksilver, cinnabar, camphor. Till disaster struck, wrecked off Goa's golden coast. As the cold current of decades flowed past us, my stacked brethren, crusted with barnacles and powdery salt, mouths filling up with silt. Still, some of us continued to gleam like the shells that yawned in those depths. Dredged up from the dark, they pieced my fragments back to wholeness, masked each crack with filler and skill. At last I came to rest in this museum, a heavy Victorian vitrine whose subtly distorting glass recalled the light filtering through underwater weeds. That night in the Blitz was my last near escape. Nothing like the kiln's clarifying flames, that fire was something else. Ranks of precious artefacts blasted into tinder, their cases smashed, rare specimens reduced to scattered feathers, shards of wired bone. In the aquarium, fish boiled in their tanks or swilled down drains. The model fishing boats went up in smoke. I've seen what it takes to cradle a wreck back to the light. Leaving the fractures for all to see, they rebuilt this place. From the other side of ruin, we found safe passage. Is it working? Can, is there a, can be, you can hear me. So it is projecting, wow. Um, it's, I'm not going to read. It's a real honor to be reading for Mary Jean's launch. I was just, re- I read, I reread her book from cover to cover today before I came here. And I feel like it's a cliche that people talk about poetry books as being, or writing poems as being brave, because writing a poem isn't a particularly brave thing to do. To anyone, a lot of people here have probably written poems. It's not a brave act, but when I read Mary Jean's poems, I often feel like a coward, which I think is a sign of their real bravery, because in the way that she explores her relationship with her mother and interpersonal relationships, it's, yeah, it's really something. So I'm going to read some less brave poems. <laughs> um, but like Sarah, I thought I'd start with um, one of the only poems in my book, which is about my mum. And it's also about this weird experience I had of being shortlisted for a, an award, which doesn't sound like a promising start for a poem. But, <laughs> but I, like, I had to... Um, I found it really... Uh, disorientating and like demotivating I had to kind of work myself back into a position where I felt like I could recapture my agency again that probably doesn't sound like a great subject for a poem (laughs) but it ended up being about my mum which is maybe maybe a more like a sweeter way to introduce it another life there was the pasture of the green room carpet and the corridor which took you by the sound room to the bar and the artist's lounge, where a plate of cold samosas had been left by the coffee machine. I found the dressing room empty and sat there staring at the mirror, at the big light bulbs and concrete walls. Bamboo, I said. Its sound dropped from my mouth without a sound. The TV showed the next round of poets on stage. 
A short white man describes a burning hayrick in a dream, an angel's crumpled wings, a tent. I heard in him a vision of old England, untouched by foreign hands. Bamboo, I said, and leant my head against the wall the way I do on buses. Two weeks ago, a couple on the upper deck laughed at a woman walking by who had, at first I thought it was a phone, a Diet Coke in one hand and the other held above, above her head her hood down dancing. The wind blew and she nearly lost her balance. But not only did she not fall, she performed a kind of hop and skip. The poet spoke about the fall. Nature fallen, his fallen nature. Still sat in the dressing room. I travelled back in my mind along the corridor and taking a different turn, pushed wide the fire exit's double doors and walked into his dream. There was the hayrick, removed from any idyll, piled high by the bus stop, burning with a molten furor. Beside it was a tent, half collapsed, where sleeping bodies lay. I heard the sweet collusion of the crowds in bars and restaurants by the river. The stairway leading to the Hayward Gallery framed a strip of sky, the moon and stars not stitched into its fabric yet. I thought of Leicester Square in 1980, when my mum, at the end of her secretarial course, about to fly home, met my boulet dad on the dance floor. His purple flares, her oversized glasses, she pretends to be embarrassed. Discos aren't romantic, but just the thought of stepping out into another life like that. I stood by the hayrick and pictured him thatching it carefully, knowing he would set the thing he loved ablaze and burn inside of it. The wind blew. I did a Morris-style hop and skip. It was autumn and the river's tent was breaking, rustle of leaf and russet falling. Mum was dancing with the white man she would marry, pleasure shaking through her leaves and shame. At least in her case, it was real. The country she would leave behind was real. Bamboo, I said. Enlarge the place of thy tent, set its stakes so wide as to leave no one unhoused. Within the dressing room's four soundproofed walls, the words dropped from my mouth without a sound. Thank you. And I thought I'd read three more poems. And I was kind of inspired by uh, Mary Jean's book begins with this preface, which she says, um, we must call out monolingualism since the world has forever been multilingual. And I felt personally challenged by that because I am monolingual. And I've always felt that as a deficit because my mum didn't uh, pass on her mother tongue to me because I think she, she thought it would, I wouldn't assimilate as successfully if I had to switch between two languages. And so a lot of the book is kind of about having this access to another language and culture, but not really knowing it. Like these kind of like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle without the like full, without knowing what they add up to, I guess. Uh, and a lot of the poems about my grandma, because I could never speak to my grandma, because she didn't speak any English. And then she died in the process of writing the book. Um, so this is the first poem, which names her and is kind of about words and roots of words. In West Sumatra, they call rendang randang. Neither share a root with rending. Rows and rows have French and Frisian roots you can't hear. Context makes the difference clear. Here lies one whose name was writ in Bahasa. Here are words I've said in memory of her who I could never speak to. Chandrasari, I call you wrongly, rend me rightly. 
rootless and unclear. And I'm going to read two newer poems. And this one is a kind of riff on a phrase that my mum would often say to me, um, which translates literally as the title, but it's, like, it's explained in the poem. Heart, heart. There's only so much words translate, though touch they do on words that could be said in English. Like snow before the soil has smudged it, this lucked into language once used is stamped with lack. Sayang means darling. Hati means heart. Hati hati means be careful. But what word I ask for this weird love of your long toes wriggling in the sun like earthworms, hieroglyphs open upraised palms reciting the takbir, naming things beyond the praise of naming. Times, there have been times I should, I'm sure, have waited, should, I'm sure, have followed. Now the pattern matters less than that it happened. Mon triste cœur bab à la poupe translates as my heart drools at the stern. Slavers words I can't unslobber. Staked between us is my utterance, my urge to speak me through you. Whether this poop sinks or not, we're sunk. Sayang, in certain moods, when means meant ends, alone understanding, not understanding, heart speak, seeking not to mind the other, touch they did, those words made strange by their address to you. Fullness filled us without caring whether it could stand it, filled us beyond full. Look, look, fuck, I can't, I, this is what translating means. I take, you take, but not from the same place. So nothing is mistaken, really. Our hearts anchorless, intact. Led lack first out to sea, where heart, heart, they bob every which way, calling to be careful, be careful, be careful. And I'll conclude with one poem, uh, with a poem about, a lighter hearted poem about my grandma dying, which also, this probably won't be in the book because it's about, it's about sitting on the toilet, and I already have another poem about sitting on the toilet. And <laughs> You know, I think I could, I would have to write more poems about sitting on the toilet to justify it as a, as a theme running through the book. But it's when, you know, the best ideas happen. Toilet. <laughs> letting the bath run, I sit on the toilet and think about keeping the plug in and letting the water spill onto the floor. The problem with cause and effect is if everything has as its cause what happened, how am I responsible? How am I saying this? Prior will spilling through me, some unseen drain blocked with gunk, making the water sputter. In the case of cloves, it wasn't that the smell drove the Dutch to kill and pillage, but that it told them they were near and maybe would do anything to get it, it being that which would spill through them. Last year, in Tangerang, I tried to smell what the Dutch smelt, the air full of burning cloves. The crematorium guard smoked clove cigarettes, smoke rising from him like a taxi rank outside Schiphol Airport in March. Baker Street by Jerry Rafferty was playing, my grandma moaning, letting the saxophone spill through her like bathwater as I sat on the toilet and watched. She was looking at a photograph of her husband, wanting to be dead and with him. Ray told me that in Jamaica, you can't just ask for the toilet. You have to say good morning or good afternoon and have a short conversation affirming the magic of existence. But what if you don't believe it? Well, then you can't go to the toilet. We were sitting in a cafe in central London and I thought that because I don't speak the same language as my grandma now dead, 
I can't go to the toilet. Thank you. <laughs> Hello, can you all hear me? Um, so thank you so much, Sarah and Will. I just want to say how honored I am that you're all here. Um, it really is a dream come true. And to have so many mentors and friends and family in the audience, it, it truly means a lot. Um, and I just want to say Sarah's really trailblazed the path for British Chinese poets in the UK, and I'm utterly grateful to you for that. And I'm so excited for Will's um, debut next year out with Granta, so look out for that. Um, <clears throat> So I thought I'd tell you a bit about the book. Um, it has a French title called Flesh, and um, it means arrow in French. But the way I use it is that I use it to denote a fencing technique. Um, I used to be a competitive fencer, and there was a technique that I practiced quite a lot called the flesh, which means that you would run at your opponent with your arm outstretched, and it would be a high-stakes move. And I always sort of was enamored by it. I felt very flamboyant and beautiful, um, but also risky. Um, I was also enamored, I think, of the cross-linguistic pun between the French flesh and the English flesh of the body, um, because as a fencer, often you might think that we're sort of encased in like a uniform with a mask and we're very safe, but oftentimes, after a lot of training, you end up being bruised and bleeding underneath because of the sheer impact of the blade on the body. And so I was thinking about the idea of the weaponized flesh of the fencer, but also the vulnerable flesh underneath. Um, and I think this duality of vulnerability and also kind of a, an armor of the self, it, it runs throughout my book, um, specifically thinking of being a queer person and a racialized person being Chinese in the UK. Um, that's definitely something I think a lot about. And lastly, in terms of the book structure, there are three parts to it. So the first section is called parry, which means um, blocking an opponent's attack in French, and then riposte, which is a kind of counterattack. And lastly, kohako, which is French for body to body. And that means um, two fencers coming into bodily contact. And for me, that's sort of tracing an emotional trajectory from a rather defensive position emotionally to a more empowered position. Um, and I hope you'll enjoy the book if you do decide to get a copy. Um, just simply because Will mentioned the preface, I thought I'd read that to you. Preface 1. We are defined against something by what we are not and will never be. Two, who will read this slim volume of mine and with what preconceptions? Three, a poet I admire once told a British audience, we must call out monolingualism since the world has forever been multilingual. Four, there are many reasons for my writing in your language. Ask your government. Ask mine. CF. The 1842 Treaty of Nanjing. The 1860 Convention of Beijing. And the 1898 Convention for the Extension of Hong Kong Territory following British military aggression towards the Qing government in the aftermath of the First and Second Opium Wars. Five, this is a book of love poems. Practice. As a teenager, 
Fencing was the closest thing I knew to desire. All the girls swapping one uniform for another before practice, their white dresses replaced by breeches. I thought we were princes in a fairy tale with a twist, since there were no princesses to be taken, wed. As knights, we were told to aim for an imaginary spot, just above our opponent's left breast. Often, I left a bruise, the blade's tip ricocheting off chest guards onto skin. Just as often, I would feel yellow blooms of ache. Where the girl I thought was beautiful had pierced my heart. Hours later, I would transform. I would head back home with a deepening sense of dread, my bruises fading to quiet. Um, since we're reading in one of London's most iconic bookstores, I thought I'd read you a poem about being in a London bookshop. Rules for a Chinese child buying stationery in a London bookshop. Speak to the white elderly man at the counter. There will be many more of them in your life, but start with him. Recall those syllables you've whispered over and over, like some version of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven and is white and beyond skin. Enunciate. He must hear what you have to say if you are to be helped. Begin with "please," say "may I," and with "thank you." He will be delighted to know you are polite, soft-spoken, well-mannered. You will be overjoyed at his acceptance, a palm reaching towards you for something you are able to give. You must hand over the money quickly, but not in haste. Your parents' wisdom comes from having had more salt than you have eaten rice. This proverb is untranslatable, but memorize and trust in it all the same. You are a tiny machine being oiled for the day you must face the world, a lifetime ahead of you, years of salt and rice and tea. So um, this week has been sort of a week of personal serendipity and coincidences. It was my birthday a few days ago, and then tomorrow is London Pride,、um, and also this year we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall riots. So I thought I'd read you a queer poem,、um, and the title is from a、uh, collection by the iconic Adrian Rich. A wild patience has taken me this far. I am writing in the voice of my most hopeful self. Amnesia was my daily bread. Thank God for fan fiction, for it gets better. For poets audacious enough to mention the body. Do you know what camouflage looks like on a day-to-day -day basis? Checking the coast is clear before opening a single tab and multiple decoys on a screen. Surreptitiously reading Shakespeare, the scene where Cesario woos Olivia. Watching my parents' faces for a sign to hold a tidal wave back. A daily prayer for the strength to confess nothing at all times. 
one day it becomes a choice to walk out of this life or to begin living mine. I left half of my language behind to escape my impeccable persona. How I wanted to perform a heroic act to gain acceptance into the kingdom of ordinary people. To love a city and to not have it love you back is its own form of torture. When I met a beautiful stranger for the first time, I was deeply afraid of her tenderness. An appointment with a therapist led to a second date. I was given permission, needed permission. She held my hand till I began to comprehend the territory of skin, its frantic heart and silent ponds. Most nights, I dream of my mother's face, by turns harsh and tender. In a nightmare, I shouted at her, neither you nor I are the enemy. What do mothers ask their own daughters everywhere in the world? Is there a question? Ask me something. I've never read this poem out loud before, this next poem, so tonight will be a first. The Heart of the Matter. I could not bear this bewildering joy, awakening to a room without walls, by which I mean a room without eyes. In a dream, I keep seeing her, my headmistress. Though she is smiling, I am terribly afraid. There is something you want to tell the world, she'd say, sipping a sencha tea, though she is not Japanese. What? I'd say. And she'd say, that, pointing in the direction of my heart. And I'd say, what? And she'd say, that, right there, that ache. Um, about five, six years ago, it was my first time visiting the Castro, um, the iconic Castro in San Francisco. And it was the first time I'd visited a gay bar, which was very liberating. And years later, when I was writing this poem, the um, Orlando shootings had just happened at the Pulse nightclub. And somehow these two experiences, my memory of being at the Castro and watching the news about Orlando, they melded into the same poem. So this is called At the Castro for Orlando. The first time you stepped into a gay bar was the first time you danced. Not just a shuffle or nodding to music, but limbs loosening into whiplash, toes into tambourines, your tongue whispering, oh my God. Strange hands that love you so much, they start to steer the shipwreck of your body into open waters, liquid light flooding the room. That night, the girl who thought she had to sit down for the rest of her life broke all the rules, became the wind. You drank till you became sober enough not to be ashamed, a cathedral of mouths. This is how heretics become holy, by setting our own sighs on fire. Four years later, a hand pulls a trigger. The music stops. 
how many were shot before their first kiss? What if you had been stopped by the bullet? Into whose arms would you have surrendered? Would you have known the anguished clutch of your lover's breath? The way skin is never an apology, but always an act of faith. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So I have two poems in this book that I suppose can be construed as truly bilingual. Um, I have Chinese words threaded through this poem that I'd leave untranslated. So what I'll do, I think, is I'll read out the Chinese words as they are, and then I'll read a translation um, for you all. So I'll read the poem twice. Written in a historically white space, one. The reader stares at my peifu and asks, "Why don't you write in Zhongman?" I reply, "Zhongmanjuyi meant that I was brought up in your image. Let us be honest. Had I not learnt Yingman and come to your shores, you wouldn't be reading this poem at all. Did you think it was an accident that I learnt your Yuyin for decades, until I knew it better than the Mouyu I dreamt in?" Is anything an accident these days, dear reader? You are lucky to have been the center of my yuzao for the past twenty years. One summer, a taxi driver in Shanghai asked me whether I was my lover's tour guide, declaring that she was from Daying Daiguo. How does that make me feel? Can you tell me what it is that I should do next? The reader stares at my skin and asks, "Why don't you write in Chinese?" I reply, "Colonialism meant that I was brought up in your image. Let us be honest. Had I not learnt English and come to your shores, you wouldn't be reading this poem at all. Did you think it was an accident that I learnt your language for decades until I knew it better than the mother tongue I dreamt in?" Is anything an accident these days, dear reader? You are lucky to have been the center of my universe for the past twenty years. One summer, a taxi driver in Shanghai asked me whether I was my lover's tour guide, declaring that she was from the Great British Empire. How does that make me feel? Can you tell me what it is that I should do next? Um, my mother is a writer.、Um, has recently been writing、um, operas, which I think is quite amazing. But she started her、um, 
job in Hong Kong as a scriptwriter many, many years ago when she first arrived to Hong Kong from Shanghai. And、um, she went through the Cultural Revolution, had a very difficult life. But I wanted to pay tribute to her talent and to her persistence. And this is a love poem for my mother. Let them know. Let them know how you were handpicked like the finest of pears, your childhood spent in a diving pool, those clasped and taped wrists hitting the water, the children stepping up once more to the task they cannot refuse, how you learned to play the piano, then were chosen for the local music conservatoire, but were replaced the day the revolution arrived, your spot given to a worker's child. How you left a decade later for the colonized city, where even the tap water was ceaselessly cold, and the citizens racist, your Shanghainese accent not fit for those enamored of the Queen's English. How your writer's callus grew for your paycheck, cash sent to your siblings and mother in Shanghai, all alive and trying to be well. You. A scriptwriter in a new dialect, expressions so easily crossed out by a Cantonese hand, the red ink blotting the black. So this next poem is called autobiography, but in the book I have a bracket around the word auto、um, because this is written in my mother's voice. My detractors think they know me, loud and always too soft-hearted. The time I purchased fifty pairs of frames from a sobbing woman whose eyewear shop was closing down. The day I lost my father and cried myself sick. Until I thought I would never sing again, though music was my only love during the revolution. The time my daughter told me she was in love with a woman. And I lied and told her it would be okay. What does three years of famine teach a person? Nothing, except that there is such a thing as perpetual hunger, loss pounding on the windows like rain. Except that my father loved me, and that he came back as soon as he could, in the swallowtail butterfly that fluttered around the flat, in our pet papillon. In my beloved child, I'll end with two tea poems. The importance of tea. When your aunt arrived, she asked for normal tea, which, to my untrained ears, sounded a bit like normality. In Hong Kong. Normal tea is green or white or red. It took my mind several moments to move from green to white to red to land on black. Your aunt was flexible. Any Assam, Darjeeling, or Earl Grey. We only had matcha, some loose leaf Iron Buddha in the cupboard, no milk. Your aunt looked at you as if you'd failed at being British, me as if I'd failed to properly assimilate. Afterwards, you said I was projecting onto your aunt the fears I harbored. 
No matter how many years I've spent in this country, how I interpret normal tea, what is normal to me? You are learning Mandarin Chinese. I see how the characters are split for you, signifier and signified refuse to conjoin. That's what happened when your aunt asked for the normal tea. Days later. When a waiter brought us white sugar for our oolong tea at a cafe, I caught your gaze. We laughed and left the sachets unopened. Tea ceremony. There are days when I pretend to understand my mother's grief, as I coax her into sitting at the table for a tea ceremony. So she might linger on the rush of green into glass, how the scent of leaf dissolves both past and future in one gulp. We drink in a serene silence. My mother smiles a smile that breaks my breath into laughter. She is radiant now, lost in the kettle's repetitive chant, her gaze fixed on the dance of fingers between utensils. I love my mother's joy. Her reprieve from the sorrows she adorns with designer clothing. Some nights I tell her, "Go to bed." She says, "I can't. Can you stay?" As a child, I dreaded her desperate need. My hand resting on her forehead, unable to let go. Even now, with Winnicott and Klein as bedside reading. I can only invite her to the table. Look, mother, your hands are beautiful. Look, our tea is ready. Thank you. Have just over a quarter of an hour for a quick conversation between the three of us.、Um, we've just heard these beautiful, powerful readings in quite different styles. I'm interested what it feels like to each of you when you read your poems, form your poems aloud,、um, and what the relationship for you in the process of composing them is between page and voice.、Mm. Well, yeah. <laughs> I think there's there's an essay in the new Poetry Review about poet voice. I know. I'm, I was, I'm actually was, just halfway through, and I haven't formulated an opinion on it. I know it's anti-poet voice, so, um, and it's something I'm aware of. But you you spend so long kind of crafting this like lattice work of sounds that you can kind of.、Hope. It's something I yeah. You, then you kind of like, it's like kind of drawing attention to your like, you know, amazing collection of、uh, like eggs or something. And it's like, <laughs> and I feel like conscious about not doing that because I'm trying to like put it in 
Yeah, I think okay. This is like this is a really incoherent answer. Basically, I spent a long time like really like crafting poems. I think I was really invested in kind of like the. I think I was overinvested in the voice of the poem, and recently the kind of poems I've been writing, I've been trying to like force myself beyond the voice because the voice can be an inhibiting factor for me in like the saying of the poem, the, the what you want to say, and often that can, it, often it can be really hard to read out. For example, it can be like non-verbalizable. And but that's something that a poem on the page can do, which is really exciting to me. And actually, Mary Jean's poems are really interesting in that way, and the way that they use the page as well. There are all these elements of them that can't be that you, you don't get hearing them out loud. Um, so I think, yeah, there, there's like a tension between the voice and the the poem on the page, which is good. Yeah, I think was it um, Vani Capadeo who said once that she kind of dislikes this idea of associating the poems with the poet, that she'd very much prefer if other poets read her work um, or if we did that more often so that the voice would be disassociated from what's on the page, which I find quite interesting. Um, I think when I read out my work, it's always just, I'm always worried about clarity, about whether, you know, it's so clear to me having written those poems, but I really want the audience to get kind of where the, you know, the hesitancies are or where the moments of sorrow are and, and trying to perform that a bit so I guess it is performative and sometimes I do read out my work whilst I'm writing it and then I realize that that line doesn't work because it doesn't lend itself to being read but that's interesting that you say you actually like that that you allow it to do something on the page that it doesn't do when you read it out loud um, yeah well yeah. I think like sometimes like the really clumsy moments are really great right the mm. the moments which I think I, I, there was a period of my life where I got into a pattern of performing quite a lot and reading, and I found that it was changing the kinds of poems I wrote because I was mm. writing stuff that I knew would sound good, read yeah. out loud, and would get a better response. Right. Um, and then that means you're like not saying a certain kind of thing. Mm. Interesting. Um, like I think, not something about me, but there was like there's like a really bad line in that first poem I read about my mum going on a, a secretarial course. And that's just like a very prosaic, bad line. I've shown it to several people, and they've been like, "That line doesn't sound like it's in a poem." Right. And to me, that's that's a kind of nice, like, I, I like that there's a kind of like rip in the poem where it's mm. where it sounds bad. You know? Right. Where Interesting. It, yeah. Mm. What do you think, Sarah? Oh, I, I I'm not going to venture an answer. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I want to pick up Will on this idea of the non-verbal textures of um, of poems and maybe the unspeakable elements of them too. Because I think both of you write poems that circle around these sort of charged silences. Um, things that might be hard to say or impossible to say for one reason or another, whether traumatic histories or um, the gaps between family members. Um, Mary Jean, you give that sort of concrete form in a poem where you have like these legible yet struck-through lines, the, these crossings out. And Will, you have a poem called Say, where the speaker sort of repeatedly challenges himself, what are you trying to say? Um, so what is that? Could you talk about the pressure that the unspeakable exerts on your poems? Mm. Um, yeah, so that poem that you mentioned, um, it's a poem called Ma, uh, What My Mother a Poet Might Say. Um, so in the title, I'm already sort of suggesting that some of it is embellished and imagined because I wouldn't want to sort of ascribe that to her as testimony or you know, to really sort of say that she said all that because she hasn't actually. Um, and the way I did it or coped with that was to strike through all the things that she said. And the only thing that stands on the page that is not struck through is the line Mao wrote beautiful Chinese calligraphy. 
which is something that she did say to me growing up and would repeatedly say to me as a kind of, you know, he had great penmanship. And I would always think, isn't that besides the point? Um, but it was very interesting to me that she found that to be sayable, you know, and, and that, I think that already says so much about what else can't be said. And so in that poem, I think, you know, for me, that the act of having the refrain and also having those lines struck through was my way of balancing that, um, trying to say something that is unsayable, I suppose. <coughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I I don't really have a formulated thought on this as well, but I guess it's the only like semi-mystical thing I believe about poems, which is that they do kind of touch on the, un, the unsayable. Or that there's like some there's some interaction between the the line the line break and the the rhythm and which kind of undermines what is being actively said or stated mm-hmm. and then it creates this kind of um, yeah this kind of productive tension or this like kind of rip to use that analogy I just introduced earlier <laughs> which is which kind of gets at something else um, yeah mm. um. Segueing from the unspeakable to the untranslatable, maybe, both of you read poems tonight that touched on what translation might be, might mean. Um, I take, you take was your uh, definition that your poem offered, Will, and and Mary Jean, your stationary shop poem, which um, gives us the the untranslatable proverb, which we have to nevertheless cling to. Um, I think it's quite striking that both of you have chosen titles for your books, Flesh, Rendang, um, which are these cross-linguistic puns that they they sort of have meaning in one language and meaning misheard or reheard into another language. Mary Jean, you spoke beautifully about this. Will your rendang, which becomes rending, rendering? Um, what does that gesture of the pun across languages say about? the act of translation implied in these poems between language and language or between poet and reader? Mm. Um, I guess for me, more specifically, um, you know, English is my second language. I, I never spoke it at home, still don't speak it at home. So Chinese, Cantonese is my mother tongue, and then Mandarin Chinese. I guess English is my second or third language. Um, and then I was very intrigued with this idea of, of French being a part of my life because I never formally learned it. I did a little bit of beginner's French. But more importantly, I learned these French words through my fencing training, right? So it'd be Cantonese, Cantonese, flesh, you know, on guard, you know. So it's sort of Chinese uh, instructor telling us these French words, slightly mispronounced. Um, but obviously he was using those specific fencing t- t- um, terminologies. And then I felt that that was only true to who I am as a writer, that, you know, oftentimes I think being BAME, there is almost this expectation. I'm sure, Sarah, you, you know, we've talked a lot about this, this, this idea of the authentic voice, you know, that almost BAME poets are supposed to perform this authenticity that often is associated with their heritage, which rightly so, you know, I, I'm very proud of that. I am Chinese. But it doesn't therefore mean that I need to be talking about noodles and all these things all the time, even though I do talk about rice and tea and salt because that is true to my experience. But so I wanted the title to be something that was symbolic of this complexity, right? This multilingual self that I am, that so many of us are. Um, and that also, yeah, it would only hint at the fact that I have several languages going on in this book and that they all speak to one another. And the fact that, for example, my mother doesn't speak English at all. You know, in a way for her to read this book, I would have to translate the book for her into Chinese. And, and that to me is quite 
you know, interesting and, and difficult at times. But um, yeah, so that's my. Yeah, it's interesting that our titles kind of do a similar thing, but in the opposite ways. Mm-hmm. In that your kind of your experience is Chinese, Hong, Hong Kongese, and you're kind of reaching out to this European type, you know, this mm-hmm. European signifier. Whereas my experience is basically being entirely Western because my dad raised me, who's like uber English, and mm-hmm. like raised me on like spam and macaroni cheese, and <laughs> <laughs> so those would be my equivalent. Like culinary references, but rendang is a kind of Southeast Asian curry, and so for me it was about claiming this experience, which isn't which isn't which isn't mine, but also trying to yeah I don't actually have any poems about the curry itself. Mm-hmm. It's about this idea of it's I guess when I came up when I decided to call it that it was like as a semi joke or like a kind of tra- a trap for mm-hmm. like to like play on the assumptions that people would have coming to my work. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have it in all caps as well, which yeah, is, which yeah. So the the caps thing is to indicate that it's just like a word rather than a. So the first poem is the is the list of um, words beginning with rend in the Oxford English Dictionary as they were introduced into the English language up until rendang, which mm. was introduced in 1947. Well, like that's the first record of it, but obviously it was used for you know hundreds of years before that. Mm. So it's about usage and how language usage doesn't correspond to the experience. Yeah. Experience. It's a trap. Um, it's a trap. In the case yeah. of both your titles are traps. Yeah. Take that, readers. Um, so uh, both of you write with real sophistication and multi-layered complexity about identity, which seems in your books to be partly a given, but also partly something that you each in different ways lay claim to or negotiate in early adulthood. Um, In Mary Jean's case, a queer identity um, which defies traditional categories of gender, both Eastern and Western. In Will's case, um, the coming round to an idea of yourself as a mixed-race individual which um, seems to muddle around with all the census tick boxes around racial identity. Um, but there's a sort of crossover too, like, Will, you have your poem Justine, which is um, which muddles up gender signifiers and, and Mary Jean, you um, your um, repeated motif in your book is the, the um, uh, interracial relationship at its heart and the juxtaposition of yellow and white skin tones, which makes me think that these this muddling of categories, this crossing of boundaries um, in both of your books is a sort of related project. Mm. Can you talk about that um, idea of categories and identity? Sounds like a really great self-contained point for itself. Run with it. I don't know if I could (laughs) express that any better. We plan this now. I guess like just a wider point about it's amazing to be writing alongside people, you know, who are trying to do similar things. I think, you know, having read your work, your pamphlet, and then Mixed Race Superman as well, I think it's helped me clarify certain things about what I think about categories. And I think that's so important, that, that the wider poetry community, and many of whom are here in the audience, you know, the Ledbury critics, for example, um, it's just been so nourishing. And without that, I think it's very hard to, yeah, clarify what you think about certain difficult subjects on your own, that, that you need to write within a group of people who are pushing you and challenging you. So I think... That for me yeah. is very powerful. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's a line that I quote in my book from this Heart Crane poem, Bridges, where he talks about the silken skilled transmemberment of soul. Mm. And transmemberment was just a word he invented. Um, 
which is I think a really kind of beautiful word for what song does or poetry can do which is yeah to create this kind of um, this kind of yeah links back to voice this kind of voice body which is like between and beyond and and that's kind of how I link it to I think every you know, no poet writes from a category you write against categories you're kind of you're trying to create your own transmembered identity in the process of writing mm. um, but you obviously begin from starting points the starting points which are foisted on you mm. and that's been yeah, I guess to, to add to that, like for me, trying to claim a queer identity and writing about it is interesting because on the one hand, if you read queer theory, it's very clear that queerness is something that is constantly evolving. You know, it's not a static thing that you are queer and people have different ways of being queer. But when you come up against, you know, society, societies or spaces that don't allow you to be that or don't even accept you being that, um, there's almost you almost have to insist on a slightly static form of representation. Um, so I find that tension quite interesting. That obviously, you know, in Hong Kong, it's just about getting an anti-discrimination bill passed that, that doesn't even exist, right, for LGBTQ people. So let's not get too <coughs> theoretical about what queerness is. We just need something that protects our rights on a very basic level. But I also am very interested in the fluidity of what being queer means and gender gender fluidity and sexuality as well so I think that's very for me you know poetically I love the fluidity of it but I also realize politically we need certain things in place before we can sort of play with that if that makes sense yeah. and they're all they are all linked which is what is brought out in your book amazingly you know the process of like racialization of um, <clears throat> the way we think about yeah sex sexuality race they're, they're, I mean they're all they're all modeled I mean that's why yeah um, the, I wrote this poem about this experience I had where I, when I was a child, where I was basically kind of like about castration fear, and I like went back and I read Freud, and Freud, I hadn't really realised that Freud, the Freud's whole thing about castration fear is that um, that that basically young boys want they 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 assume that everyone else has a penis until they see a woman, until they see their mother, and then they're shocked and they're like, I'm going to lose my penis, and sometimes if they don't. If either they like process this successfully, or they become um, perverse in his like terminology. They become like homosexual or like deviant in other ways. And it's, it's those things are also you know that kind of like deep. And so I had the, I, I had this early experience where I like looked over. I had this dream where I looked over the row of urinals and I saw this girl called Fiona, and she had a little and she was and she was using them using it as well. And that seemed like a really I don't even know where I'm going with this now, actually. <laughs> but that seemed like an like obvious analogy. Right? Yeah, that's, yeah, and then that, yeah. I wrote this poem, Justine, yeah. I changed the name. I should probably have not yeah. broken <laughs> the, the, the cover of you know. But it, yeah. oh, that seemed like an obvious okay. analog in terms of identity. You know, that yeah. there's this like yeah. fluid early childhood state, which is then kind of categorized, categorized or miscategorized. Yeah, but it, so. yeah, well, like it all like stems from that. Mm. Yeah. Play, state of play, or yeah, yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Um, well, I think you just used the phrase "beginnings we don't choose" or um, something to that effect, which which makes me think of um, a quality that I admire hugely in both of your poems: the way that you trace these issues back into history, back into the past. Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk about colonialism and its legacies and the way that those histories in Hong Kong, in Jamaica, here in the UK, um, haunt 
your poems um, and how you came to be able to write about that subject and find forms for it? Um, so I suppose in my case, I, I, you know, I came to sort of this idea or awareness of colonialism quite late, really. Um, it was from being racialized, I think, in the U.S. and then here, you know, realizing I was a poet of color in the States, queer poet of color, you know, POC, and then now here I'm BAME. Um, and then thinking about how that happened, sort of how come in Hong Kong, I always had the sense, despite being a racial majority, that, you know, most Hong Kong people are Chinese, that I still had the sense that we were not quite uh, the majority, if that makes sense. And that, I think, stems from having gone to a former British missionary school, an Anglican school, um, that very much during my early years, I remember up until the age of 10, you know, English was mandatory in the classroom, and we were told off for speaking Cantonese. And this is a class full of Chinese students, right? But I always thought that was normal, that, you know, you would get told off for speaking your mother tongue, that on the playground you would whisper it, you know, and, and that what you had to master was the important language, which was English. Um, and obviously that's benefited me in many ways that I have come to master it. But I think the psychology of it was quite problematic and that I was ashamed at certain times that my English wasn't good enough, that I had an accent, for example, or, you know, that, that if you were to choose between literatures, you would choose English literature over Chinese literature, obviously, because that would show that you were brighter or more intelligent. And that, that was the case um, up until very recently, actually, um, in, in a lot of these schools in Hong Kong still. Um, I just felt that that was an essential part of how I was socialized, how I was brought up, that it would be untrue to, ref to not reflect that in the book, despite the fact that I also write elsewhere of having fallen in love completely with English, that because I was realizing things about my sexuality through reading Shakespeare, um, really enjoying Twelfth Night, really enjoying the fact that Cesario was actually Olivia and that she was trying to woo... Uh, sorry, Cesario was actually Viola, who was trying to woo Olivia. Um, and the only thing that gave me access to that kind of queerness was English. So I fell in love with English. Um, it was like my secret language, you know, my playful, safe language that I could be myself in. So there's that duality for me. You know, it's a, a complex thing to have, to have learned English under, in a way, kind of an oppressive, you know, kind of environment. But also, I, I, I love it. I still love it. So it's a, that's, that for me is... The, w the weight of colonialism on English for me, I think. Yeah. It reminds me of that phrase in Dress where you talk about your skin haunted by the British flag so you could be Chinese with English characteristics. Mm. Where, does that, where does that phrase come from? Oh, so, so that's a pun on, you know, in China they used to say, you know, socialism with Chinese yeah, characteristics. Right, that's it. So I came up with the yeah. Chinese with English characteristics. Because that reminds me of the thing that... Um, the, Thomas Macaulay said about India, you know, about his, his like, whole plan of um, like ang anglicizing the elites mm. and, then, and then kind of like, so they would, he would like ship them over to like Eton and Harrow and like give them this like classical English education and they would go back and be the kind of like leaders and rulers. And, yeah. and so they would, they would be basically like, they would be like other in blood and color, but English in taste and mm. sympathy. Mm. So it's, it's yeah, yeah, I feel like that's, the ideal I inherited, or this idea, it's kind of Im implicit in the idea of an English liberal education, that it's like pulling you out of the kind of like miasma of, of racial identity, that that's yeah. something that kind of, kind of like lower, and that education is this elevating thing where you move right. beyond um, yeah. colour and creed. I think that was the big thing for me, was realising that, that, yeah, that, that that was there, that that perspective was always implied. Mm. Yeah. 
But I think it's very interesting, and I've, I've said to someone recently, you know, the idea of me being Hong Kong Chinese as a kind of racial identity, but surely being English and from London is equally a racial identity. You know,、um, someone was saying, I think,、uh, who is it? Robert Frost, you know, he's a farmer from like the Midwest in the United States, but his poem "The Road Not Taken" is is this universalized thing that we can, you know, everyone can relate to supposedly. But he has a very specific identity, right?、Mm-hmm. And I think that I want to claim that, or I don't want to claim a universality, but I almost want to challenge the idea that you can be universal and be raceless. That's to, that to me sounds just implausible, basically.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Let's end with the implausibility of Robert Frost standing for all of us,、um, and have cake.、Uh, come and buy Mary Jean's Wonder of Book, and she will sign it for you.、Um, and thank you to these two brilliant poets again. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit LondonReviewBookshop.co.uk/events. 